Hello. How has your week been? Better, I hope, than the Air France HR director who had the shirt torn off his back after announcing staff cuts. He was forced to climb a fence to escape wearing only a pair of trousers and a tie. I'm Emma Jacobs and I'm standing in for Henry Mance, who is no doubt tuning in to FT Podcasts from a beach somewhere. On this week's Best of the FT Podcast, we'll be talking about the TPP deal, Ben Carson, the outrage at Air France, as well as the ubiquitous Anne-Marie Slaughter on still not having it all. But first, a breakthrough. The US, Japan and 10 other Pacific Rim nations have struck the largest trade pact in two decades in a huge strategic and political victory for US President Barack Obama and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The Trans-Pacific Partnership covers 40% of the global economy, covering a wide variety of sectors. The FT's world trade editor, Sean Donnan, explains. This is the biggest trade deal that anyone has managed to get to the stage to complete negotiations on in 20 plus years since the Uruguay round of the mid-90s. How big is it economically? It is something that we're going to test over time, but clearly there are significant commercial reasons to do this. You're linking up two of the three biggest economies in the U.S. and Japan, two or three of the biggest economies in the world. You're easing the flows of trade between them. The agricultural lobby in here in the U.S. is hugely excited about the opening up of the Japanese market and a big market for them. The Japanese car industry is hugely excited about some more opening up of the U.S. market, a big market for them. So there's a real, there's a fill-up there. Also, you're seeing, I'm in Lima, Peru for the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. And here, it's one of the things that people are really buzzing about. We're in a slow growth environment in the world. And Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF and others, have pointed to this as a type of thing we need in the world to try and get growth going again. But does it make sense to have a deal that excludes China? The Obama administration's argument for this is we needed to do something to push the case of trade liberalization in the world because nothing was happening. The Doha round's been stalled for 14 years. We needed to find some way to unlock things. And the way to do that is to do it with a sort of coalition of the willing in the world of trade. And right now, China is more of an opponent than a member of a coalition of the willing for the U.S. administration when it comes to setting these rules. Jeff Dyer, former Beijing correspondent and now in Washington, gives his view on how China will be seeing it. A couple of years ago, the Chinese were very hostile to the idea of TPP. You would occasionally hear officials say things like, this is economic containment. This is just the flip side of the U.S. military strategy. They're just trying to encircle us and cut us out. But the Chinese rhetoric has really changed a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, you have a different administration now in China. They have their own very aggressive economic reform program. They're trying to reshape the Chinese economy, take it away from heavy industry and more towards services, try to open up a bit, trying to liberalize, trying to make the market more important. And so you see Chinese leaders talking a bit more favorably about TPP and seeing it maybe as a way, not necessarily to join now, but using this process as a way of trying to kind of exert pressure on the Chinese system to push through some of these reforms, kind of in the same way as they used WTO entry a decade ago to push through a previous generation of economic reforms. So they're much less hostile towards TPP than they were a while ago. That doesn't mean to say they're going to join immediately, but they're not aggressively lobbying against it. It's still not a done deal in Washington or many other countries. On the subject of Washington, Dmitry Sevastopoulou, our Washington bureau chief, discussed the surprising rise of Ben Carson, the retired neurosurgeon who has gained traction in the Republican race against Donald Trump for the White House. So who exactly is Ben Carson? 
He is a guy who grew up in the, the ghetto of Detroit. He had a, a single mother who herself was one of 24 siblings. Uh, he and his brother managed to do incredibly well, worked very hard in school. He ended up getting offered a scholarship to go to West Point, the prestigious military academy, but he decided not to because he wanted to be a doctor. Uh, he went to Yale and went on to become a neurosurgeon. And at the age of 33, he became the head of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital, which is one of the best hospitals in the world. He has no background in politics, but two or three years ago, he appeared at a national event called the National Prayer Breakfast, where he criticized President Obama to his face. And that made him a really popular figure with the very conservative wing of the Republican Party, and particularly people who are affiliated with what's called the Tea Party, the kind of anti-establishment wing of the, the GOP. Um, he's gone on from there, and he entered the political race for the White House earlier this year. At the beginning, he had very little name recognition. His polling numbers were quite low. But people have focused on Donald Trump and his kind of outrageous comments. Ben Carson, who is a much more soft-spoken guy, a different kind of demeanor, has crept up in the polls to the point where, in some of the latest polls, he's only one percentage point behind Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has started to attack him a little bit, you know, underscoring how well Ben Carson is doing. So he's come from almost nowhere, and all of a sudden he's a force in the... 2016 election. How does his ethnicity play with voters? I was recently at a, a forum in South Carolina where most of the candidates spoke, and it was uh, sponsored by Heritage Action, which is a very conservative uh, political action group. As far as I could see, he was possibly the only black man in, an, in a room full of about three, 4,000 people. And yet he got the biggest, uh, the biggest applause. He got standing ovations. He had happy birthday sung to him. He was easily the most popular person there. And I asked someone, it's, it's ironic that there's very few black people in this room, and yet he is the person who seemed to get the most support. And one man said to me that we don't see him as a man of color. We see him as someone who talks about policies um, that we care about, and we don't see race being an issue. Which is interesting, because if you look at the support that Ben Carson has been achieving, a lot of it comes from evangelical Christians, particularly in Iowa. He himself is an evangelical. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and his support from the African-American community is actually relatively weak. So here you have a, an African-American man who is going for president and actually has a lot stronger support from white evangelicals than he does from African-Americans. So this is a really interesting question. Speaking of divisive characters, Michael O'Leary, chief executive of Ryanair, spoke to Tanya Powley, the FT's transport correspondent, about no longer being an errant teenager and growing up even going so far as to be nice to his customers. Part of this adult persona means campaigning to remain in Europe. Absolutely, Britain should stay in Europe. Britain should be at the heart of Europe. It's the best chance we have of keeping some of the French insanity out of the system. And it's very important to the British economy that it stays in Europe because Europe is by far and away the UK's biggest trading partner. Are pilotless planes the future? Well, you don't need to see the future. I mean, you already have pilotless planes, drones flying across, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, the military authorities already have them. So I think they will come, but it's in a very long period, maybe in 50 years' time or the next two or three cycles of aircraft development. You will undoubtedly see one pilot aircraft and then no pilot aircraft. I wonder what the French would make of Mr O'Leary. Hopefully they wouldn't tear his clothes off as happened at Air France's headquarters when management outlined a 5% cut to its workforce. Michael Stottard, FT Paris correspondent, explained the background. 
Well, I think first of all, it's worth pointing out that there's a long history of violent protest in France and it often bears results. Um, in 2009, there was a spate of boss napping where union members and protesters would kidnap chief executives or senior management. And often it bears results and, you know, management or the government caves in. They were so angry because Air France was planning to cut 2,900 jobs and also, as you say, introduce mandatory redundancies for the first time since the uh, 1990s. And... Uh, uh, French employees do not like this kind of thing. I'm joined by Andrew Hill, the FT's management editor, to discuss the story. So as Michael said, this kind of protest isn't a complete anomaly in French industrial relations, is it? No, there have been spates of incidents where bosses have been intimidated by protesters before Jean-Paul Sartre commented approvingly of this in the 1970s. There was another spate in 2009 and as recently as, as last year. But it is a little bit of an outlier in terms of the gravity of the aggression showed. And uh, we haven't seen an incident probably as, as severe as this recently. Everyone likes to paint France as a quirk in labour protests, is it? I think it is. I mean, I think there are similar incidents in other parts of the world, but without wanting to get too bound up into national stereotypes, they do tend to reflect... Um, national characteristics and the French protests have an air of theatre about them. Media is invited, their incidents are publicised, it becomes part of the pressure that is put on on individual managers and indeed after this one, one of the fears that the French press has been expressing is that they are reinforcing national stereotypes. These pictures went round the world and there was a certain amount of shame that this was simply underlining that this is something that happens in France if you attempt to cut jobs. And what kind of results do these kind of protests have? Well, sometimes they can alert companies, obviously, to uh, the need to make compromises. In the past, they have brought government action, sometimes to put pressure on managers, although that hasn't been so much the case recently. Obviously, they're disconcerting to foreign investors and foreign executives. They represent a blot on French reputation, as I've said. And I suppose the uh, the only other impact is that... Uh, Human relations advisers and lawyers, including one I spoke to today, still say to executives about to announce job cuts that they'd better take their uh, toothbrush into the negotiating room in case they get held there for longer than they expect. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. Lastly, to Anne-Marie Slaughter, who stepped down from the US State Department in 2012 and caused a viral stir with her Atlantic piece arguing why women still couldn't have it all. In her new book, Unfinished Business, she continued the discussion. Alpha Chat's Cardiff Garcia had her into the studio. She explained the contentious title. The, the title of the article, as you said, was Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And I, in negotiating the title with The Atlantic, I thought that still signaled to everybody, here are the changes we still need to make. So that I was saying, of course, women can, in fact, fit work and family together the way men can, but we have to make all these changes. That is not how many people read it, and many people did not read more than the title, which meant that I have spent three years now being introduced as, this is Anne-Marie Slaughter, she says women can't have it all, right. which is sort of the opposite of who I am and what I've done and why I, I wrote the article. And so the book 
is an effort, first place, to get rid of the have it all. I, that's just not a helpful frame. But really to say, here's what we need to do to get to real equality between men and women. The policy recommendations she makes are? The policy recommendations I make are far less likely to affect the CEOs or would-be CEOs who can buy their way out of problems and much more likely to affect the millions of women we haven't talked about, right? The millions of women. We have too few women at the top and too many at the bottom. So the majority of uh, poor in the United States, again, overwhelmingly female, uh, two-thirds of shift workers, the majority of uh, minimum wage workers, all women, and many of them the sole breadwinner and caregivers. So by choosing the frame of care and competition, what I want us to focus on is how we are not supporting care as a society and all the bad things that is doing to us because we really are not allowing parents who want to, mothers, fathers to invest in their kids. And what I'm saying is you need, you know, you need maternity and paternity leave. You need paid family leave generally. So that's for, it's not just for your children. I'm, I'm born in 1958. That's the height of the baby boom. You know, we are aging incredibly fast. I mean, the, the generation. Uh, so we're facing an elder boom. So you're going to need paid family leave to, to be able to take care of your parents. And then we need, high-quality, affordable daycare, something that we got close to in 1971 and have gotten further and further from ever since. And that th- that combination of those things, paid leave, equal maternity and paternity leave, and high-quality daycare would really revolutionize the ability of men and women, but particularly women, to be able to be to stay in the workforce and be the kind of parents or caregivers they want to be. With caring in mind, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 